Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. Episode 10. Welcome to episode 10 of Far Realms Radio. Today we're going to talk about what makes a good adventure. Oh man, this is a tough one. So let's start with what is an adventure? You know, I mean, and uh, maybe that's a naive question, but like just let's cover it from the start, in your opinion. An adventure, I think, is a really hard word to define. It's one of those things where if you're trying to define it, you can almost always find an example that breaks that definition, and you can almost always come up with one. Um, We often tend to look at it in terms of it being a kind of story because there's so many narrative factors in your common adventure. And that's how Mm -hmm. we tend to think about it because that's the story we tell after. Like a movie or like a video game. Exactly. Right. The story is what we what comes out of the game. Right. We get the story out of the game from playing it and then we talk about it afterwards. Right. Um, But I think it's important to understand that it's not strictly a story. If you're a DM and you're like, I have a really good story to tell, I'm like, ooh, well, you're gonna have a lot of players who are gonna fuck up that story yeah, for you. Not the way. To and go. also, like, if you have a good story, like, why do you need to? Why do you need players? Why do you need to play the game? Just go write the story and right. enjoy that. But for me, uh, the way I look at uh, an adventure, I was thinking about this and read a bunch of different articles and thought about it again. I really see it as a series of self-contained potential plot points, right? That you build around a central tension or a conflict. Um, and this is something that the characters might experience in the game, right? Generally, when they are trying to achieve whatever goal that they have set to deal with that tension. Yeah, I like to think of it as uh, the activity of the night, you know. So in that character's life, or more in, s- for the players, for the players as <clears throat> for well. For everybody who's coming, that you know, the, the adventure is the like a board game. It's the thing that we're going to do tonight. And, you know, when friends come over for board game night, then, oh, so-and-so brought a new board game. Let's try that. Oh, I went to Gen Con. I got a new board game. Let's try that. Oh, let's play Elder Chorus. It's our classic favorite. You know, it'll give us four hours of time and has some crunchy bits and whatever. We like the pandemic, you know, pandemic legacy. So instead of pandemic legacy or any of these competing products, ours is what we're going to do tonight. It's the adventure. And it might be a one-shot or it might be one that we've been doing for a while, a serial you know, but uh, but I think of it very much as the activity of the evening. So, so more on a player level, and you think of it less on a game level. That's right. Like because it's not spe- it's not something that's specific to D and D for you. It's just a gaming experience. Well, it's the gaming experience, and D and D has its specific way of realizing that. And and I think of it as the activity of the evening from both the DM side and the player side. And the DM, I think of it as okay, this is the thing that we're going to play tonight. So does it give us at the table all that we need to be able to have a good time? Or as the DM, do I need to supplement it with anything that will make sure that we have a good time with this adventure tonight? And as a player, I think about it as, okay, I have this avatar of myself, and is this adventure going to let me get what I want out of this game that I've built my character to be able to do? So the simplest definition for you is something that happens. It's the, it's the, the, the <laughs> evening activity. It's the, it's the activity we're going to do that, that day at, or that game time, you know? Yeah, something that happens. It's, it's something what we're is going do to together. happen. Yeah, it's our, 
It's like uh, we're going to come over and play backgammon or we're going to come over and play chess or Go or D&D. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would consider those to be adventures in the sense that we're talking about what makes a good adventure in D&D, though. Well, that's why that's why, that's why why I qualified with what I expected to be able to do. You know, a good adventure, in my so it's opinion. It's more about the experience that you elicit from... That's right, that's right. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean... You're more about the end result than what the structure or definition of that adventure may be. Um, I think that the structure helps us get to a good end result, but like you and I have talked about it a number of times for my money, if I'm going to spend money on a game accessory of some kind, I want it to be one that's going to give me and the people I'm hanging out with entertainment. And that might be a Smash Brothers video game and that might be an adventure module. I guess, yeah. So to parse it down, your goal is to elicit a certain emotional state for those involved in the game, right? That's, I guess that is kind of the point of a good adventure, right? right? You're trying to get to that emotional state of saying, wow, that was fucking great. Right, exactly. And that might be a particular story that I think everybody will like, or it might be a particular mechanic I think everybody will have fun with playing with. You know, depending on the group and, and the mood, um, but that's the quote unquote adventure. It's it's at a very meta level for me. It's, it's at a, like yeah, a player level. Gotcha. Yeah, for me, I just parse down like what is the most simple, usable mm-hmm. definition. So, and there are different structures for different oh, yeah. ones, right? But they do all have some commonality between an adventure, even if it's a sandboxy one versus like a story heavy one or whatever else. Like if we pick go into a store, download off the DMs Guild, what is it going to look like? What's that structure going to be? Because that's, you know, it's helpful to know that because if you pick up an adventure, that's probably how it's going to be structured. Right. And any, anyone you get anywhere is going to have a bunch of preamble and maybe Easter eggs or context or a foreword or whatever, most of which is not really required reading. But there are some things that you are going to need in any given adventure. And the hallmarks are typically, they all have an introduction, right? Where it just gives you basically your... Your synopsis, your summary. They're going to give you all of the, this is what's in this, yeah. in these pages. Sometimes it's even right at the bottom of the cover, right? On the front cover, it'll say like a fifth edition D&D adventure across the wastelands of Char for characters level five to seven. And then it might even be like meant to be completed in six to eight hours of play. I, I just want to say I on the few adventures that say how long it's meant to be completed in, <laughs> please kudos, please keep doing that. It, please keep adding that as a thing, even though it's inaccurate. But please, please, please keep doing it. It's a very it, wide range. It is, but it's a, it gives you a good sense of how how many nights that's going to get you. You know, from, from the perspective of the player who's like, this is our activity for the evening. I look at six to eight hours of play and I go, that's one or two sessions. Yeah. I look at it going, oh, maybe they playtested it. Yeah, right. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe they playtested it. If, but, I mean, if they, credit, not, if they credit playtesters in the credits, I'm like, yes. Not every, most actually, I think adventures in D&D don't do that. And I really wish Wizards did. It's, it's mostly DM Guild stuff where I see that, right. um, for sure. Um, that's definitely one that you'll see. I think that that little in- introduction on the front and sometimes the synopsis on the back are honestly the most useful things to read. Yeah. Because it, we all know the adventure background is usually the fucking worst. It is. You know, like the adventure background <laughs> is what the author thought slash the editor thought that you, the DM, need to know. So you can appreciate their genius. Before you run this. And in practice, that's true maybe half the time and probably less than that. You know, the adventure background, if you are one of those people, and there's no shame in this, who's just like, I'd like to read all the things because I'm going to read all the things, then great. This Mm -hmm. is for you. It's a small little blurb of whatever for you, I guess. But from a practical perspective of running the game at the table and what you need to do to prep, it often really doesn't matter. No, it's not. 
it's so much better if it's just basic, you know, and it's just like super concise information on what conflicts might occur. You know, something that it use the DM, you kind of have an idea of how the plot's going to move forward a little bit from that point. Right. Which is what the adventure synopsis, I think, does yeah. better. And you don't need like to enjoy the Lord of the Rings. You don't need to go study the Elvish scripts that Tolkien wrote in his other books. You don't need the Silverion. You don't need to read that. You can really enjoy the Lord of the Rings without it. So these are three common sections that you're going to find. You're also going to find one usually that has a call out for important NPCs. Uh, there's this, I, I'm of split mind about this. Either include the NPC right where you meet them uh, or have an index in the back. The problem mm-hmm. with the index in the back is now you're flipping back and forth yeah, that stat yeah, block every that time. That drives you me nuts. It. Right. But when you, and the, uh, the other side of that coin is if you include the stat block right where you're going to use it, if that character survives elsewhere, now you have to flip back and forth to that page and remember what it is. I so. found I kind of like having it uh, with each encounter as I go through. If there's multiple encounters in the adventure, I like having the map. And the relevant stat blocks kind of near where that encounter actually happens, not in the back, not in an appendix. It's so annoying to have to flip back and forth. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a big a deal if you actually have hand, physical paper because you can have the map out and kind of read through. But when I go through and I'm reading like, okay, room seven, and I have to scroll down to the map, and I'm like, okay, what, what room is room seven? What does it look like? It just creates this – it makes it more difficult – to read through the adventure and visualize it, at yeah. least for me personally. I, I agree. The Wizards wizards adventures are, are sort of notorious in this regard. And this is also just about layout generally. You know, the, the other thing you're going to see is a bunch of encounters, scenes, acts, chapters, basically a division of whatever their structure is for this content and how you're supposed to consume it. And there are certain ones that are laid out better than others. Um, I've yet to see one that's a true sandbox that's laid out really well. Even in other brands like Pathfinder, it's just a hard thing to it's lay out. It's a hard thing to lay out. But one of the things about the D&D brand ones that we use in this edition is that you basically have to read the entire adventure to understand how it's supposed to run. Um, so, you know, word to the wise. You're going to go with some of the officially published licensed content or you're going to run, you know, uh, organized play kind of thing. you got to read the whole thing. You can't just... Yeah. Uh, even if you're pressed for time, well, you know, you got to make time for it. The funny thing is, though, like you don't when I run an adventure that I pick up, I don't like sit down and read the whole adventure. You don't really have to. You just have to read enough for the for what you're going to use that night. Right. Like, you yeah, don't you sit say down that, and, but you try and run Ravenloft that way. I know. Yeah. But I'm saying, you know, that's true. You have to know some background, but hopefully you're able to get that from the synopsis and the summary and all of that. One how much hope. you One really need to know. One would hope. Like, because. There's so many times you see like, oh, make sure you read all of this. And like, I fucking don't because I don't need to. Like, I'm not going to sit down and read the whole 20 pages in one go. Like, I'm going to read half of it to kind of know. I'll look at the back to see what what the end result is, right? I need to know what the possible end of the adventures might be so that I can figure out what's important as we move forward so I don't shoot myself in the foot, you know, with an NPC or something or a secret. Which, if the adventure is organized well, is easy to do. And Paizo is really good at this, and they're not the only ones. Kobold Press does a good job, too. Monty Cook has for a while. Um, I think that this is an area that Wizards has gotten better and D&D has gotten better at the published content over the years. It's still not where I want it to be. And I think that the the content you find in the DMs Guild today is going to be a better reflection of that kind of content. There's someone content. out there that does a better job than Wizards in some of those, those I mean, categories, in my opinion, for sure. The bar is not high in layout in this case, but uh, but it's it's fine, you know. Like once you have grokked the adventure that they'll publish from D and D, yeah, uh, then you know all of the scenes. You can wrap your head around the encounters. What mm-hmm. are they? The scenes, the it's, acts, how I it ties together. It, the big thing is kind of figuring out, yeah, how it fits together. Like how you might flow from one encounter or scene to another. Like how those may end up connecting. 
And that's kind of like what you have to play to find out. You right. know, that's the point. Which makes the last section type of thing you're going to see in the book, the maps, stat blocks, all the extra resources, yeah. appendices, all that stuff. That That's where it gets useful. Yep. I, I prefer a lot of the time if it's also interjected earlier in the text along where you might need it if it's a longer text. Don't give me a book without a table of contents. I will fight you. Yeah, it's not hard, guys. You can do it. You can do it. Really? Um, so, yeah, those are kind of what you'll see in the structure of the adventure. An intro, a background, usually some kind of synopsis, uh, including important NPCs. And then you'll come through the encounters and all the extra stuff like maps, stat blocks, and appendix in the back. Well, so let's talk about what types of adventures there are, right? Because it's, and we've qualified from where what, what we use them for, how mm-hmm. we view what an adventure is and what the composition of it is. But there's like a... You can have two books, two adventures that have the same structure and both be adventures and be totally different. And it's because they're different types of adventures, right? And here I'm talking about things like, is it an event-based adventure? Is it a site-based adventure or something else? So let's dig into what types of adventures those, what what there are, broad categories for for the kinds that we see out in the wild. Um, I think that Probably the easiest one to wrap your mind around first is the event-based adventure, you know, which is very much like it sounds. This event happens, and then based on the result of that event, another set of events could happen. It's not bound by usually time or place. It's it's uh, trigger-based, um, and you can think of it very much like a TV show or a movie. You know, when a scene happens, something resolves in the scene, there's a conflict or some choice that the characters in this place, in this case, the players have to make. And then based on the choices they make, th- we accelerate to the next thing. We don't worry about necessarily how they get there. Did they take a car? Did they take a carriage? Did they take a horse? Did Doesn't they fly? Matter. Unless there's something relevant, like an encounter that might happen you, on the way. You switch locations like law and order. Donk, donk. Right, exactly. And now you're in a new scene. And, Doesn't matter how you got there. And uh, yeah, you got there however it makes the most sense for you to get there, whatever. It's not part of the story. Um, and these ones tend to be a little more story focused. Uh, they, I think the best ones present players with complicated choices that don't have clear answers, um, and multiple events, you know, so it's not just like this happens, then that happens, then that happens. It's this happens, then one of these three things happen and like it becomes a flowchart. Site-based adventures by contrast are your sort of classic dungeon crawl. You know, you go to a place, it might be a murder mystery in a big mansion. It might be you found an ancient tomb full of skeletons and you explore it. And the difference is that rather than the events controlling the pacing of the adventure and the the players navigating the pacing by how quickly and the way in which they solve the events, in here it's explicit. Each event is a room, it's a door, it's a place. You know, it's some part of the place they're in, the site. It's a, even if the site is, um, let's say, an old college, you know, an old university, they go over to that building. That's a series of other sites in that one once they get in the door. But we can break it out in this sort of more broad site-based, where are they and what is in there, and then how do they deal with that? Oftentimes, there's a lot of like backtracking from mm-hmm. one part of this site to another part of the site. Back to town, back something. to the dungeon. Maybe back to the town, maybe to the place where there's a door you couldn't unlock now mm-hmm. that you found the key after you killed the basilisk, you know, whatever. Um, but it's it's a little more free form. It's a, It gives the players a little more agency in how they choose to solve this content. What led you to make, where does this distinction of like event-based versus site-based, that framework come from? Where I think does it, it come comes from? from Monty Cook. I think this is back in the days of third edition in 3.5. Um, it may have been Eric Mona. I don't remember. Back then they, all, they worked together quite a lot. Um, and Monty Cook did publishing before Monty Cook Games took off and became the thing it is today. Um, and they talked about the different kinds of adventures. And they did it 
because it was when digital publishing and PDFs online were still sort of nascent compared to where they are. So you wanted to be able to categorize them because there's another type that's in there too. And people who love event-based adventures don't tend to like this third other type of the spectrum, this this last sort of uh, side of it, which is the sandbox. And the inverse is true too. You know, So a sandbox is the way we describe an adventure that feels kind of like you're a kid in the sandbox, you can do whatever you want. You know, it's a big, it's a big o- open, open interactive world. You can site kind usually. of, it's a living, breathing world. It you has, kind of do whatever you bounds. want. It might be like a kingdom. It might be yeah. the whole world or a continent, depending upon the scale of what you want to do um, and how much work the DM is willing to do. And usually what you'll hear this be compared to is like railroading or, you know, sometimes that's the, the angle people will take to explain sandboxing. Uh, I, I think that that's I, I actually think, a poor a poor way to describe too. it. Like event based is the one that people often that's accuse of, of the, railroading. The binary explanation people will give sandbox right? or railroading, yeah, yeah. right? And, and that's it's far too simplistic uh, an explanation. So you know, let's t- touch on railroading for a moment because it's a good count- counter to talk about sandboxing and to players who like sandbox style adventures where you have a wide kingdom with which to choose whatever your motivations are and pursue them at your leisure and build things that you want to build more like a simulation, uh, often when those players play in an event-based adventure, they feel railroaded because their choices are limited and they want to you know, have some other kind of thing. So this goes back to like knowing what your players mm-hmm. want and choosing based upon what your players want, which of these different types of adventures that you want as well. And this is, this, a lot of this thinking came out of these discussions around uh, how do you railroad versus not railroad? Is railroading good sometimes? Yeah. And I'll give you an example. Um, Half-Life... The very first one, actually, all the Half Life oh, games, they're linear. As they're fuck. completely you're, linear. You're on rails the whole and, time. And we love it because it, it's I really mean, good content. Dude, there's literally a Dreamcast game where you're on rails the whole game, and you shoot at things, and people still love it. Right. It can literally be on rails. People so will still like it. Is not necessarily a bad yeah, thing. Yeah, I agree. And do not take that. Of and course, it's not internet. necessarily the opposite of sandbox. Correct. Either. Correct. You can. I mean, you can railroad somebody in a sandbox too, depending upon what's going on. But regardless, uh, so these are these are the different these are different types broadly that you can have you know interesting because for me like i look at these but i just have like essentially different names for them the way i've looked at it and rather than be like event-based site-based or like sandbox i look at it as just more narrative influence in the style of play over time right because like we always talk about the classic dungeon crawl adventures and that's because the the narrative we were coming from war games the narrative controls weren't in there as heavily right you you gave the you mentioned there was an old spooky manor on the edge of town and the players are like, well, we know what we're doing. Let's go. There's some treasure right. in there. Right. There wasn't this ambiguity of, oh, but my character's motivations. Oh, but this. Oh, but what if I want to socialize with the townsfolk? It was much more, and I don't want to say hack and slash, but it was much more in terms of you had assumption that the players would take this mission and go and do the adventure. There was less narrative, like players weren't worried. It was more mechanic, right? Like you were saying, like each room, you know, it's well, it very mechanical. Yeah, it de- exactly. It depends upon the player expectations, right? Like a, a sandboxy type adventure is going to be, you can progress at your leisure. You yeah. know, how, do you want to, do you want to explore the manor? When do you want to come back to town? Yeah, I think how it's, do you want to manage like resources? Like you were saying, it's just a matter of more or less like narrative influence. Versus an event-based adventure, you're going to explore, there's some reason that calls your players to the manor at the end of town, and then the door mysteriously closes behind you, locking you all within, oh, of and course, one of you, you is a murderer. To, you have to prevent them from going back. That's a big part of an adventure. There has to be the point of no return. Well, like, for an event-based adventure yeah. in particular, yeah. right? It's always moving forward. Whereas I the think, sandbox, you can do basically... Yeah, and I think part of that is if you look at what story structures are the most analogous to those, you can kind of see like a big part of a story is usually there's this point of no return where like you can't just go back. The hero can't go back to town. Right. That you've got like 
to the point of no return, you have to keep going now. Yeah. So I, I like to think of it when I'm talking about the different categories of people as the on the spectrum, you have an event-based adventure is kind of like a murder mystery show. Mm-hmm. Um, a site-based adventure is kind of like a, uh, maybe it's a, a specific uh, a horror show. You know, you're trapped in a, in a manor somewhere and you have to escape. And a sandbox is more like playing SimCity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really see, I, for me, the sandbox is just a, just a series of, site and event based adventures organized geographically which comes which comes to the next point is <laughs> as the as our thinking in game design has continued to evolve and we've had now a whole swath you know a decade plus i guess of of paizo putting out regular adventures for a D compatible game wizard stepping up and putting out a lot of content as well now we've started to mix and match them eberron was one of the first ones that did this you know it would have a series of very pulpy event based you are on a train it's a murder mystery and the train deposits you at a site and you have to now explore this ancient temple. And, well, how do you categorize that adventure? You know, is oh, it yeah. railroady or isn't he? Isn't it? And, <laughs> and what can you run for organized play or when you like, buy it, you know? We're like, literally on a train. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's literally like a railroad. So, exactly. Uh, I think that... You can always find an exception. I think that part of what makes this game fun and what makes a good adventure, in my opinion, is that it has the ability to mix and match these different types so that there are... Uh, Maybe in the cor- over the course of an evening or a couple of evenings, some site-based things you can do, oh, yeah. some event-based things you can do. It makes it, it really helps the world feel alive when there's a mixture because it doesn't always feel like we can predict what's going to happen next as players. Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a, a big part of it. But for me, I tend to, it's funny because I tend to look at it more, uh, probably how most people tend to look at it is adventures in terms of their scope and their length really is tend to be one of the ways we talk about it the most in terms of is it a module a scenario a one shot is it a campaign or a box set you know is it like a homebrew world that's been going for 20 years right i feel like that's a big place like a big talking point of how we talk about these things as well as difficulty in the form of character level or setting i mean it's one of the things that's required t- discussion in my session zero basically where, yeah. where we sit down and i'm like all right into how i plan this is why i say it's an accessory to the table and one of the things i say is this one this is a level one to 15 and you know we're in out of the abyss right now yeah. one to 15 they don't tell us on that one this is why i'm such a fan of modules are like this is this many sessions or this many hours you know like, yeah i knew i need a scale that's more familiar to the game. I knew I knew with, with Paizo stuff, for instance, in their adventure paths, they put out one every month and there are two a year. So it's like every six months you have a complete story. But having run a few of them, it'll take you a year to two years to get all the way through depending on how often you meet. Once a week or twice a week and for how many hours. With this one, and the classic uh, metric you go back to is, okay, levels 1 to 15. So that's a little more coarse-grained you know, for like, what's the scope of the adventure? But it does tell you still how long it can take, right? Oh, yeah. You go, okay, levels one to 15 is going to take us over a year and probably it's the same as Paizo, probably less than two, but because it's D&D and it has a different pace than other games do, I would say maybe closer to the two side. And then a lot of it depends upon how the players short circuit various things, right? <laughs> but uh, I mean, there are all different scopes and lengths, right? There's one of my favorite type of adventures uh, I learned about for the first time when I went to Gen Con years and years ago, which is a one shot. You know, like an actual legitimate, not just let's do a one shot, let's come up with a homebrew because we have some friends in town and we want to play D&D in this normal day or whatever. Or um, we're going to run this particular encounter because one shots weren't always a thing. It was, oh, this is an adventure that's designed specifically for a four hour time slot. Mm -hmm. And it's designed with some constraints like it has an A, B, 
uh, C act, three act structure or whatever, you know, and, and part of that came also out of organized play for how to get people interested and they want to show up and participate in all these kinds of things. Um, all the way ranging to like a box set, you know, you buy like a big box set that has a bunch of adventures in it and it's a whole campaign maybe for multiple characters and now you see like the, the game industry has kind of gone more toward Gloomhaven and, yeah. and these kinds but of games. It's been cool to see some box sets come back, especially for like beginner sets. Like, oh, yeah. I think that's really, really a good idea. I think that box sets that have more than one adventure in them, they give you like, here's your intro adventure and yeah. then there's like maybe two others that's and good. then you graduate. Yeah, it's That's great. super good. You I know? love and, that. Like, it's enough to really it's feel like you got your money out of that toy. Definitely. Basically. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch one shots become such a thing as cons become more of a thing because that's, like you said, that's pretty much where it evolved out of that and like, when you get together with friends you don't see all the time or your old gaming group or right. something, right? When time is limited. And I think there's a lot of uh, good things we've learned about adventure writing from one shots. And there's a lot of people out there who aim to like kind of run each of their session like it's a one shot so mm -hmm. that it has those up and down and narrative beats and like that kind of that light, like narrative structure almost. Mm -hmm. You don't always want to do that though because some of the advantages of having a long running campaign is you can use more long-form narrative things like mm -hmm. lots of foreshadowing or recurring stuff motifs and whatnot uh but it's been kind of cool to see the rise of one shots i still as like kind of a grognard like look at one shots i go oh that's cool it's uh not as good as a campaign though so we're gonna play a campaign right <laughs> right yeah like I unless it's like a new game to try out or it's like a silly one shot or like you know it's an event for some reason i'm like but but we could also just play a campaign and that be better. Just sink our teeth in. I think that there's a holy grail here, and uh, it, it does exist in some cases. I think that some of the third party material for third edition had this. It was really where I first saw it. Is that you can have a series of one shots that stitch together very well to form a cohesive campaign. And maybe in a published product kind of line, I would look at it for Eberron in third edition, they had was I think Whispers of the Last War, Shadows of the Last War is a four adventure uh, adventure path. And they were shorter adventures and then they were divided up in such a way that you could take any one of their set pieces, you know, each adventure was just a, a collection of three or so set pieces. And you could take any one of those set pieces out and use it as a one shot for a night. And that was great. You know, it's sort of this like very easy, digestible, both from a DM and a player perspective, we, you know, and it has a cohesive thread through the entire thing. So why this is good is because if a player shows up, you can easily integrate them. If they're going to miss a session, you can easily deintegrate them and pull them back later. You know, it's very modular in a way that makes running the game easy. And that means you don't have to worry about, oh, my character is just off screen for right now, you know? Yeah, Definitely. So let's talk about, um, you know, setting in adventure and how much, it, what, what parts of it matter, um, what it serves uh, for, the, for the adventure itself and for the game. Yeah, a lot of the time, especially in that adventure background area, there's just too much unnecessary setting and information. Right. Players don't care about what's over the next hill. They only care about what's in front of them. And that's really only what, that, what matters. Like you just said, what's on screen, right? Like, yeah, like maybe this is happening because of all these events and this world history, but that really doesn't matter in the, usually in the adventure you're going to run. Yeah, I mean, in, in film and theater, we say show, don't tell. And a lot of writing about a setting for an adventure is a lot of tell. And yeah. this is, I think, why art is so compelling for both DMs and players and why it's useful to show players art because it's very literally, this is what you see. And it's a it's a compelling thing. It, it's You save yourself so much time in doing that. Yeah, 
And like, for example, like it doesn't need to say like, oh, and everyone here is mad because the Knights of Rin did this. You can just put in like one of the character important NPCs area like this character hates the Knights of Rin because of whatever. Like, and that's way more useful because it's that character specific rather than like putting that in the adventure background where it may not even be important. You may not have to address that at all unless they talk to that NPC over there. That's where it becomes relevant. This is something I think 5e did actually rather well. It, uh, when you're in a new environment and it's not adventure specific, they did it site specific within an Mm -hmm. adventure or whatever you might be. They have a, a sidebar, a call out with environmental features and the setting is mostly going to be that, right? Yeah. What's the environment to which we're in? And that might be, you know, okay, the knights of such and such don't like us, so avoid them. They're bad guys. But mostly it's also going to be, is it cold? Do I have to worry mm-hmm. about weather? Yeah. Do I have to worry about food? Do I have to worry about what? You know, like Location is a big part of setting, um, definitely. And I like how Sly Farsh talks a lot about uh, having a fantastic location, meaning having a location that has some like kind of memorable, fantastic features. Yep. Um, John Four from Role Playing Tips also has some really good stuff on how to make a location quote unquote memorable, mm-hmm. right? And the without going into it, kind of like the things that will describe a place, but actually be memorable, not just like throw away. Yeah. Right. A real set piece. That's not, yeah, not just a, it doesn't just feel like an encounter generator spat out a thing and there you go. You know, yeah, exactly. something memorable, I think is a good way to think about it. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter in a setting, uh, or can be readily changed. And I like to think about it as either two, it's, there's really two parts to it. Either there's the serial numbers of a setting uh, and an adventure, and then there's the window dressing. And the serial numbers are things like, if I want, if I want an Eberron adventure, or maybe a Star Wars adventure, but I don't want to have to deal with stormtroopers, you know, or I don't have to deal with the Empire, then I would scratch off those particular serial oh, yeah. numbers and say, all right, let's take the stat block for a shock trooper, stormtrooper, or something like that, and let's use that instead. Or in Eberron, so instead of Warforged, they're golems, you know, and you and you just like change the flavor part of it. Um, and then the, the window dressing is mostly around what do the buildings look like, right? Can I take a city from – and here's a great example. I have for third edition a uh, World of Darkness source book on a, on a city, on a vampire city. And it does a really good job uh, – and it's for D20. It does a really good job of walking you through the ins and outs of that setting, of the city, of the players, the factions you have to deal with, the mm-hmm. characters and their motivations – um, how players interact with it. Uh, there's another one that Monty Cook put out as well back in yesteryear, which was Tallis. And it's like a big 800-page source book on a city built with the assumptions of 3rd edition D&D. And it's really great to change the window dressing, change the name, change whatever, take the structure of the city, the maps that they have, and the kinds of things that are in each location that's all window dressing, and then plop it in wherever you need it. Oh, yeah. Reskinning things and learning to reuse and pick and take what you want is one of the most important skills, I think, of being a DM these days because you have so many cool resources. You can do so much less work if you're just willing to like change a few things. And a lot of time when you first start, you, you feel like there's this right and this wrong way to do it in the D&D narrative or things like that, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. Like, you can just take that stat block and it's a pirate stack block. Well, now it's an orc pirate. Like, what What needs to change? Maybe throw a feature in there on the stat block, you're done. Like, it's just a series of statistics and abilities. Mm-hmm. Like, reskinning is super important, I think, especially for, uh, you know, a good adventure. You can reskin it in a lot of different ways. It'll probably still be good. You're just changing the flavor. Like, ice cream's good. The You know, unless you really hate that right. flavor, I'm right. probably still going to eat it. Right. You know, it's probably still good. 
So one of the things that the uh, the setting in the adventure does for you that is really useful is it's a shorthand for tone. You know, so when you talk about the setting, uh, if I say something like, you know, this adventure we're going to run is in Eberron, and that means that people who don't know what that means can go look up online or wherever they want some quick and easy information about the tone. They'll know, oh, okay, so this is going to be a pulpy adventure. It's going to be probably a lot of action adventure. It probably is going to be a lot of globe trotting. Um, and modern sensibilities and kind of questioning our place in industrial society. If so it I could say, also be very noir. Yes. <laughs> but if I say Ravenloft, that doesn't mean noir in that way. It means gothic way. horror. It means gothic <laughs> horror. If I say Forgotten Realms, it's highest fantasy, you know? Uh, so it's it, it's really useful as far as tone. Like highest fantasy story is basically a power fantasy. You are going to be you are going to get more powerful. You're going to have demons and extra planar madness. That's going you're going to face that stuff. You know, if I say the underdark, that means you can say that you know it's going to be hard. You know there are going to be a lot of evil people. It's your shorthand. Drow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Drow. There's always drow down there. Fuck those guys. Yeah. Um, and and I think that that really. It's easy to lean into that too much, especially as a DM. You know, you want to convey a certain feel to the characters. But, but only just as much as you need. As, no, as much as you need to get their characters that look like they belong in that setting. It's it's like box text. Like, after a sentence or two, their eyes are going to glaze over. Right. So it really needs to be a couple strong features or bits of things that set that tone for you. And just lean into those. So, like, do a few things well will do so much for you. If I was going to describe the Iron Kingdoms as a setting for how minimal I feel about this, I would say the Iron Kingdoms is a diesel punk setting with giant stompy robots and big knights with big swords and magic that's also tech. And yeah, and then let them run with it. And you just kind of go with however they right. perceive it. Exactly. Forgotten Realms is a high fantasy setting where nothing is impossible and nothing is too weird. I think a, a big part of running a good adventure is being willing to be flexible on this, on the themes and stuff, mm -hmm. a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have, to be. you have to be. Because the game needs to be about your players' enjoyment. Not necessarily about ev everyone's enjoyment, but when the DM makes this, the game so much more about the story they want to tell than about what the players want to explore... That's where you lose it. That's where you lose everything. This is why I think it's important to keep the setting tone uh, clear and brief because it allows them to have hooks into it very easily for their characters. So they can they can find something they can latch into a very generic thing. And then you can deepen it with them if they want. Yeah. Which brings me to the next part of the thing that the setting will get you. I think the other big big boon is the the mood. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, it's like a the flip side of the tone. If the tone is the the feel of the story that we're going to tell, the mood is the feel of the characters who are in that story. Gotcha. Or or adventure or sandbox, right? And uh, kind of like the Malou. Yeah. So, so if we're talking about like noir as the theme, then that kind of tells you a couple. It's a shorthand for a bunch of things. Like there's going to be smoking and black and white talk over scenes and, no, that, and that, hats. That, that would all be tone, in my in my opinion. Mood would be, is it a noir story that has characters who are glitzy and glammy and shiny feeling? No, they're always petty. Not not always. Uh, well, I mean, they might be petty, but they also all be glitzy and glammy. Or is it a noir story that has uh, existential crisis? Or is it about loss? You know, it, this the mood really is about the motivations of the characters. And the setting will give you some of that because they'll, it'll give you background hooks. It'll give you some sense of what kinds of people live in this area. You know, so you're not going to have either a noir tone or um, questions about 
existential places in industrial society if your setting is a very rural backwater in the middle of nowhere in the forgotten realm. Exactly. It's yeah. Kind of. Kind of. The, you know? What you can do with the mood is kind of determined with by your theme, right? Right. You're not right. going to do like a super grim, dark, serious thing in like a My Little Pony themed game, but I'm sure right. there's somebody doing that right now. I mean, it, it, it's, it requires a lot more work, you know, and that's where the setting can give you a, it's like a shorthand for these things. I say things. that, but there's someone out there doing that, having I, a great time. Because of the internet. Like, okay, cool. <laughs> so, um, one of the things I also like about a, an adventure, I think that maybe is this, the strongest adventures have this for you. Um, the writers have given some thought into where this, what this looks like, which is a strong start. Oh yes. So important. You know, uh, it's definitely something I picked up from reading, uh, Mike Shea's Sly Flourish stuff in the, uh, Lazy DM. He mm-hmm. talks a lot about how having a strong start to a session and how important that is. And what I picked up from that is when in doubt, start with combat. Yes. Immediate because res. people this is all of a sudden, think. they pay attention, there's stakes. There's immediate threat. Boom. Yeah. So a strong start, you know, and, and it can... And it doesn't have to be immediate res, but like, you know, like, don't be afraid to throw it in there real early. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be also in the middle of a fight. Totally. And you, don't, and you don't have to give all the players direct information. You can say, all right, the game starts and some adventures will do this. Everybody is rolling initiative. And then the next round, you tell them that you're on a train and you're hurtling through the air or whatever. You know, you, you start it right off with processing information a lot uh, and trying to make meaningful decisions right away as opposed to trying to find a way for everybody to get together. You know, the players will be like, what's the, why, what's the conflict? Why mm-hmm. are we having, why are we not already together? Why are we, you know, having a strong start where they already have something that they can work toward, obviously. Survival is a good, easy one, but it doesn't have to be. It might be a courtroom. It might be an argument. It might be when you just got kicked out of wizard school. It could be a chase scene. That's a common one. Chase scenes are great. Every um, James Bond movie ever. And, uh, yeah, and, and this, and this, I think is a really good way to exercise some, some easy and cheap tricks as a DM, which is, um, using things like kicking in the door, having ninjas or zombies or whatever, kick in the door and Mm -hmm. cause an automatic fight. You know, um, a good example might be you have a bunch of players who are, uh, maybe nobility and there's a very tense negotiation going on with two newlyweds. I don't know. I'm making this up. And, uh, you know, that's the, where you lay out the framework and then you start the session and like, there's like a, a round of talking and then somebody kicks in the door and ninjas attack, assassins arrive and, and you're automatically off to the races. And now not only do they have to defend their own lives, but also the other NPCs who they may or may not want to live, whatever, yeah. you know, very strong, very memorable, you don't have to worry about like how do you know each other in the tavern? Oh, how do God. I get you to oh, go God. over to that table? No, and, I mean, please don't start in a tavern. Please don't. One of the other things <laughs> I learned from T uh, twenty Star Wars that was really actually quite useful, and I think it was where we premiered this in the in the Indian well in role playing generally, and it has taken off since then, is using cutscenes as fodder for this kind of stuff. So in the context of Star Wars, D20 Star Wars of yesteryear, they would say things like start off a session and sprinkle them periodically with a, cu- a cutscene of the Star Destroyer bridge yep, yep. and you have the Admiral say, deploy the troops, you know, and then you cut back to the players who are racing along a platform and they have no context for when or where that's going to happen or anything like that. You know, as a as the DM, you have a lot of control for these kind of narrative things, and it's scary yeah. sometimes because you know you don't want to like players to glaze over, yeah. and they will if it's too long. But it is also a very good like you you get their imagination going fast. It's, it's definitely a cutscene, and and games that focus more on making it feel like a TV show or a narrative of that style usually provide methods for that. But you'll see it a lot. Like I think Adam Cobo is a DM who does a good job of that, and he'll be like, you know, just like 
we for a second we cut away from the heroes and we see a dark figure in a robe and a chair and then he says you know and you go kind of from there and right. like you don't provide a lot of context anime does this so well very well every freaking anime you'll see like the dark outline or comics do this too of some new hero or villain you don't know who it is you know and they're like always in the dark and then they have this big reveal later on one piece does this all the time every anime ever does this and it's uh, a good theatrical trick yeah. and you can use it at your table too Definitely. But yeah, the cutscenes are great. It's also a great way to uh, maybe have the big boss if you're using that that kind of mechanic in your campaign, a big bad. Um, your players can see who it is. They can get an idea of why they may dislike him or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. without having to suddenly be like character level one interacting with like a level 15 boss who just wipes the floor with them. Mm-hmm. Right. No one likes losing or surrendering. So it's a kind of a good way for them to see how terrible or whatever this, however this person is at a distance. I, I want to say something that's maybe controversial, but shouldn't be, which is that this extends to players too. So when something happens, you know, you start the session or you start it or it's your turn or whatever it is, players should feel like always, in my opinion, at the table, they have the ability to take agency and cut away. Then the player could say, I cut away. And then my character was over here talking to this person some years ago. And that person says this thing and hands him this knife. Cut back to the scene. My character pulls the knife and lunges at the orc. Yeah, that's a, a flashback mechanic. You see that in Blades in the Dark. Uh, it's pretty cool there. Yeah, yeah. you can do like yeah. a flashback mechanic. Like Blades of Dark yeah. is a good example of where this has gone and been enshrined yeah, exactly. in rules. D&D it's, doesn't have anything like that, like, but that doesn't mean you can't just do it. Totally, you can just hack it or take it. And it's been cool to kind of see these ideas evolve into mechanics in new game designs. Mm-hmm. But uh, where I tend to find that works best in D&D is when you do kind of downtime or leisure time where you're maybe going to fast forward time forward a little bit, you know? And I, that's where I usually ask my players like, okay, is there anything you want to do specifically in this time? Like you have a whole day in town is there anything you want to do? And that's where yeah, and you, you're good downtime. at taking that opportunity because that's where I give the opportunity for the montage or yes. the like little bit or the cutscene because that's perfect. But downtime is not what I would say is a strong start. No, 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 don't. Not as a strong start. Not at all. Right. This is a good point. We're getting away from the strong start. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> I guess if I bring it up because you, you want to have a strong start and cutscenes and playing with the audience's mind and the audience is the other players at your table both DM and other players, player, actual players, uh, you know, taking their imagination on a little bit of a ride is is a strong start. It's a, a good way to help them anchor you and what you wanted to get out of this and um, make it a memorable experience, which is really, in my opinion, what it's all about. It's why I come back to that it's the activity of the night. Yeah. Strong yeah. start gets you momentum. All right. So um, I've been yammering a lot about various stuff. I think it's time to stop into this tavern that we have strolled by and take a take a little brew. Let's do it. All right. So here we are in Tavern Talk. And this week, this is the part of the show. Or we toast to you, our awesome listeners. Our lovely listeners. And uh, and we do have a promo we're going to talk about at the very end. Um, but we chose an adventurous beer. Advent- adventurous. Uh, I just made up that word. Ah, <laughs> I like it. Uh, and it's the Campfire Stout. High Water Brewing Campfire Stout. I and like it because it tastes like s'mores. It says leaves you wanting s'mores. Usually I'm not huge on overly su- too sweet, but I think this one does a pretty good job. Tasting like s'mores. Stout brewed with graham crackers and molasses with natural beer flavor added. Campfire Stout evokes fond memories of wilderness and camping adventures. I mean, I like this because when the first time I tasted it, it was unconventional. I hadn't had a, a beer have a smoky and yet kind of malty mm-hmm. 
s'mores taste like that. Yeah. But, but it's not saccharin like some of the ones I've had who are, are in the same like yeah. campfire style uh, and just too much. Too, too sweet. If it's too sweet, I'm not a, not a huge fan. Yeah. This one's kind of nice because it has kind of a sweet start and then it kind of, the smokiness takes over. It does. It does. And it feels really kind of, uh, charred is not quite the right word no. for it. It's um, roasty, yeah. I, I guess. Toasty. Yeah. Toasty. You're, you're toasting marshmallows. Uh. You're toasting and roasting. <laughs> Yeah. Where's this one? Uh, where's this high water brewing at? This is from... I think I see a California on the back. You do see a California on the back. I'm looking for where they talk about where the... NorCal something. It doesn't say... It's got to say somewhere. Oh. Well, we chose San this... Jose. No, oh, my hometown. Your hometown. Oh. Well, I'm so proud. Highwaterbrewing.com. Not a lot of actual bears there, but hey. <laughs> but hey, that's guys... Uh, I chose this one because it had adventures in the description, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it leaves you wanting some more. And that's what a good adventure should do a little bit, too. It does. We'll talk about that when we come back, I guess. That's one of the last things we're talking yeah. about, ending an adventure. But first, I think we should talk about our, our next giveaway since we've been away for a couple of weeks. Right. So uh, we're going to launch a new promo, I think, uh, for the, the end of the year. New year, new dice. New year, new dice. You need an excuse for more dice? We got your back. We got your back. And we're going to have really quality ones. They're going to be finely crafted metal ones. And uh, they will not only that, but look beautiful. Yeah, we'll, we'll purchase some off of, uh, it's probably going to be Die Hard Dice. We'll throw some picks up on the Twitter. Yes, indeed. You guys can see what you're in the running for. And yeah, that's the plan. Uh, we'll be putting that uh, contest up on Twitter, just like the last one. It will essentially be share a link to the show. Make sure you put the hashtag Farms Radio, and uh, we'll make sure we add you to our list. So with that, thanks for listening, and let's get back to talking about what makes adventures so great. Let's do it. So now we're back and we were talking about strong starts. And one of the strongest starts that I love is the start to the Two Towers Lord of the Rings movie, the second one. And you may remember that Gandalf in the first one, we lose him, right? He He's a uh, spoiler alert. Oh, he's, no uh, spoilers. He's taken down <laughs> into the pit by the Balrog. You know, it happens in the book, happens in the movie. It's a tragic moment. Made me cry. It's fine. And then the second movie starts with Gandalf and what happened to him as he's falling through this mountain. It's a hell of a start, really. Fighting a Balrog just, as they fall just through Just falling the through the Underdark, fighting a Balrog. Right, no big deal. Right. I mean, it was probably one of the most epic starts to a story that I ever have encountered. You know, it's one of my favorite openings to a film, period. Uh, and in theater of the mind in D and D at our table, we can absolutely do that. It's a little hard to do vertical falling like that because you know the table is not a really great three D <laughs> space. But but the point being that it's it's super super strong, um, and and how really important it is that creates a hook for us the audience and as the DM I guess if you're running the adventure for your players um, that makes it really easy to to keep the stakes really high. And uh, and that's, I think, what makes part of an adventure also really successful is how you manage the players staying hooked. And that really basically boils down to three things in my mind. One of which is the stakes, another of which is player engagement, both with the DM mm-hmm. and across each other, and then also pacing, general pacing. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah. you can, and, you, and I include pacing in this particularly because 
you can have the other two nailed. You can mm-hmm. have cross-player engagement, both with the DM and also other players amongst the, themselves, as well as high stakes that motivate them to continue to take action in the world. But if the pacing isn't on, then they'll check out. They'll oh, yeah. go off and wander yep. away and come back, and then the session will begin to drag, and everybody feels it, and people start yawning at the table, and you're like, it's only 8.30, guys. Come on. We just sat down an hour and a half ago. What is this? <laughs> and... Uh, so let's talk about stakes and managing stakes and how, how you can keep them high, I think, which which is the idea of them. You really want to, like, stakes, if they're not high stakes, they're not worth it, you know. And I've definitely played games with people who are in the, I would like to have low stakes and build my farm and economy mm-hmm. game, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not, I think, what's best served adventuring by Adventuring usually comes with higher stakes. Like fantasy adventure game. You're adventuring life or death situations. Usually that's where you're ending up. Right. And, and you know, life or death is a great place to start. Um, you can also start by threatening something that the, the characters love, you know, something that they hold dear to them. Kill the darlings technique. Right. and it, But that might also be symbolic. Like maybe it's... Um, you know, a, a character starts and wants an ancestral sword, and one of the first things that you do is take that sword away and dangle it in front of them. And it's right there. Maybe they get it, well, and then they lose it. They get it. No, no, you have to actually <laughs> give it to them. You have to, you have to give it to them, which, which we'll get to that into a moment. But, but the point is that you want the stakes to be just a little bit out of reach. Not so that the, the characters will feel like they can't achieve them, but that they feel like they have to spend a little bit of something maybe resource, maybe yeah. mind power, maybe whatever it is to get it, that they yeah. can it's get it. It's usually a resource attrition in right. some way. Exactly. And, and this is the carrot methodology. Um, but then as the DM running the adventure, it's also your job to help them get there. Maybe not too overtly, right? So, okay, you take the an- ancestral sword. If it's the very first thing you do, then you're going to have this period of not having this thing. And then you have to give it to them, help them get there at some point. And, and the helping in that case really is when they beat whoever mid-boss took it so that they can have the final showdown with the final boss and their awesome magic sword, you want to help enshrine that moment of recovering the sword as only the DM can running the adventure so that it feels impactful in that moment. Like it mattered. Right. Yeah, that really mattered. Yeah. The funny thing is stakes and just the entire concept of hooking players is something that's a lot more modern in terms of adventures. If you look at old adventures, there's no like explaining like how to hook the players. No. It's assumed like it's a fucking adventure. There's a castle. We There's a dragon. Go. Like... There's treasure over yonder. Right. What what, do you, what hook do you need? The the very first adventure I ran, Firestorm Peak in second edition, had one hook for one of the players potentially, and it said that one of the characters would have a family member who went and investigated Firestorm Peak, and that's all. It was like one or two sentences, and, and that's you're it. like so. That's cool story, bro. What about the rest of the characters? Like, like that's great for one, but what, we got we got a party of like five. You know, they're just like along for the ride. Hey, bro, we're gonna help you out. You know, I, I mean, mean, yeah go that way except that guy's playing an evil character and that one is a chaotic neutral you know (laughs) well that's the thing is there's so much more narrative and character focused things now that the buy-in matters more right the stakes and the buy-in actually matter more as we've moved away from more games and more to these character focuses i agree i think that and i mean what's interesting about that just as a, a quick tangent is that character focus was what took it away from a war game in the very start. Oh, of course. You know? Yeah. So we went from nameless gotten... units down to right. like people. Right. So I think this is the same trajectory that D&D and tabletop has been on forever. It's just we've deepened it more as we've yeah, had it now, Well, because now we were, we're so worried about like, would my character do this? So and, yeah. one of the other things I think really works well uh, for helping 
hook players at the table. It's not just about the character too. It can be about the players. And this is why also I think of an adventure as the board game of the night, so to speak, because cross-player engagement also keeps people at the table and keeps them really engaged. You know, having something that they can play off of, having somebody they can riff with, having somebody that they can solve a problem with, you know, uh, a puzzle or the combat or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, also is really helpful. And uh, helps keep the energy at the table high. It helps keep them invested and interested because everybody's looking for ways to work with the other players to the mutual benefit. And this can be like plot twist cards at a table. It could also be your characters have... This has worked really well in a... Uh, one of the games I ran some years ago where you give them special bonuses for working together at certain things, you know, like team up powers. The funny thing is, like, in D&D, when you really look at just the mechanics, there's not a lot of player-to-player engagement. No. There there really isn't. There's like, I heal you, I buff you. Inspiration has one, but it's very minimal. really pretty much it. There's not a lot of forced uh, player engagement. Like, it... I've heard it described before as like people all playing solitaire at a table. And sometimes, you know, you could see it that way because it's very different than a game like Magic the Gathering that has like tons of interaction and engagement, even in a multiplayer setup. And so it's more of the DM's responsibility. Like you just and that's a great example is like giving buffs or things for team up moments. And I mean, everyone loves to have like a good team up moment, of right. course, right? right. Of you got to have the cannonball, spe- you know, so fastball special, right? For cross player engagement, there's there's basically two, uh, th- there's basically three different kinds, I think, of of different ways players engage from you know uh, the DM's perspective and other players' perspective. One of which is something that the player drives, right? Player driven, and this is things like plot twist cards or hero points or fate points or whatever you want. You so know, some form of like narrative control. That's right. It's a, it, and it's a player initiated move. It's basically the player says, I play this card or I spend this resource I have and I take control for this little piece for a little bit. You know, it might be a plot point or something like uh, one of the podcasts I listen to, they do live play and each player has a plot point, which basically lets them grab hold of the narrative everything involved and drive it in a total direction that they want and then they let go and uh and there's like some of them have an exchange where the dm can veto stuff but has to spend Mm -hmm. resources to do it you know so you can get complicated here there's crunch Mm -hmm. to be had um but that's basically one one type you can think of like some players really like that agency we have some at our table who Mm -hmm. are like i want the power sometimes to make things Mm -hmm. to be a chaos monkey yeah or sometimes they just like being able to take that director stance, mm-hmm. right? Like you would if you were a DM. Because mm-hmm. we do play a game with a lot of other game masters. And we so I understand wanting to do that, like take that director stance and make this like thing happen because it would be so cool. Right. And I think that's kind of nice to be able to hand that agency to players that you know can want to do that. So another thing that really works well for cross-player engagement that's not player-driven is fomented engagement. And that's usually by the, the DM. You know, you're running the game, you're running the adventure, uh, you set up a scenario that requires more than one person to solve it. You know, it, it has to, there have to be two levers that be pulled at the oh, same yeah, time. Of course, when you have like a puzzle or something like that. Yeah. yeah you, or you force the, the engagement that or way. Or there's a fight and it has mixed uh, units, right? Ranged and spellcasters and melee. So your melee people can't just plow through it because those guys on the ledge are going to kill them with bows before they get there. You know, right. so you have to you have to think outside the box and and or the like first the hydra, place, like you got to cut and burn multi heads. Yeah, right. you know, like there's there's enough facets to the problem, whatever it is, that you need more than just one person to solve it. Uh, and then one I can the last and one I consider to be some of the most elegant is uh, working across across ends amongst the players, and this is represented nominally, I think, uh, in Five E as the factions, right? You know, you have the Zentrum, you have the Harpers, you have 
the Order of the Gauntlet and was it Lord's Alliance and uh, the em- Emerald Enclave. Oh, that's pretty good. My Forgotten <laughs> Realms lore is like zilch. And they, they translate that to the five colors in magic and uh, they have yeah, the dragon that. that marked houses in Eberron, you know, so, but but the realms are the stock setting. So anyway, my point being there are factions and they've leaned into that a little bit just for organized play. But I think it's really worth playing up the factions as a good way to enshrine differing and cross odds values. So if you have a Gentrum in your party who's a mercenary slash assassin and you have a harper in your party they're both spies slash shadowy people but they have very different values you know so they're it's easy to get them to work together for certain things but also in a maybe co-oppetitive kind of way right they're not always just going to be buddies that's some of the strongest i think gameplay that you're going to get is having friendly rivalry bit my frenemy kind of yeah you know a party full of some mixture of frenemies yeah you could do that with more mature players that kind of devolves to bad murder hoboing and with (laughs) Teenage with, with years. Teenagers yeah, I remember but, those I mean, days. What doesn't in teenage years? Yes, this is true. Right? Or kids. Kids are actually the most frightening because they just like murder and hobo like the craziest. They haven't learned about ethics. Yeah. They don't even know what that is. It's like rather impressive, actually. Um, so then uh, the last thing I think that is worth talking about is uh, uh, from a pacing perspective. You know, and how, This is just a logistics I mean, piece yeah. about like how to keep the game active and i think this applies mostly for dms but also to players just paying attention to the amount of time we take up with the table is really everyone's responsibility it's kind of like fun because it can only takes one person to fuck it up right um (laughs) some of the things that as a dm i do that help with this uh they sort of are transparent is I, i will do often what i call micro cliffhangers you know so um on a given turn if the player needs to look something up i will just park them with some cliffhanger and then move on to the next player and then reorder the initiative I need to later because the player wasn't ready. So they sacrificed their turn. Yeah, yeah, looking I've up done that before. Right? Like, you're like, okay, like you forget the words to your spell. We're going to move you down five steps in the five in the initiative order. And then we'll come back. We'll get to your turn right. this round, but right. it's going to be later in the round because right. you can't remember the words all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, I, you don't I, know what your fucking spell does. And I would probably not even pick an arbitrary number. I would just say, okay, you're going to wait until you're ready and I'm ready. Oh, yeah. And, and you can uh, just throw them back in the initiative order. Right, and right. You don't have to change the permanent position, but I, I might. I might not. Maybe I, you will. Depending. It's, but the, how vindictive are you feeling? Where I got to about <laughs> reordering initiative on the fly. And you don't do this if you're not if you're out of combat because you can just jump between different players, yeah. you know, Um is uh, being able to do that for all kinds of things. You know, like, okay, somebody's rolling a bunch of dice. They have a complicated attack that they're sorting out. When you get really good at this, you can kind of just reorder them on the fly and, and handle, you know, who's in, who's next. Not just on deck, but like the next three. Maybe you as the DM do some pre-rolling so that when the monsters come around, you know, it's their turn, you do exactly boom, 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 boom whatever it is. You don't need to take, you take mm-hmm. less time, especially if you're the DM because you have a lot of stuff to run, you know. So um, I think it's a skill, I guess, what I'm getting at that that can be built, managing the pacing and then reordering when people go on the fly, as long as they all get a turn. So to keep keep the players engaged. Exactly. To keep everybody everybody engaged. Just to keep it, you know, because if if somebody is delayed, it's like taking a while on their turn, they're engaged. Yeah. But the other people at the table are not. Exactly. So let them stay engaged in their process and move on. Yeah. That's like my favorite strategy is move them, have them pop back in the initiative order. And then, you know, you can, if you want to flavor it up with an in game reason, like they can't remember the words of their spell or they fumble with their weapon for a second, you know, you have six seconds of round to work with yeah somewhere <laughs> somewhere in the five to five to seven eight something yes exactly right um, oh it's stuck in the scabbard 
So let's talk about pacing in the adventure itself, right? We're talking about like kind of table pacing and hooking players in the adventure and what makes it good. But I think that there's some part of it that also is in the adventure too and how it's written. Kind of baked into it, yeah. Right, you know, um, and, and depending on the kind of adventure it is. Uh, and, and you have to think about, from a pacing perspective, the continuity between sessions. So that's like one part, what happened last session? And this is why having memorable... Uh, encounters and, and scenarios helpful. is really helpful because it, it anchors <laughs> it in the players' minds. Um, but also, as you pay attention to, okay, last time we had a big knockdown dragout fight on top of a big dam, so we're not going to have another knockdown dragout fight on top of another big monument this session. Let's have a little bit of pacing change, you know, so that we did like it's a whole combat, you know, boom, 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 the whole time we were playing, it's just one fight after another. Maybe this time let, we'll change it up too, so we'll keep it fresh, right? Yeah, you can get two kind of longer ups and downbeats in a longer narrative form so in like a campaign like you can have that big battle and then maybe you have a whole shopping session or something how does it always <laughs> take the whole session and then you know and then you get into more of a mix but yeah you don't want to keep giving that like if you had a lot of one experience it's different than a one shot where you try to keep it a little bit more even keeled all the way through Right. As long as when the pace slows down, you don't let it stay slow for too long, right? Like with comedy, the thing that makes it good is the variance. You know, comedy is really heightened by serious moments and vice versa. Pacing really works well when you have fast-paced, tense moments and then beats of rest. Not just yeah. like, okay, you get a long rest, but like, yeah, maybe we're, you know, role-playing for a session or whatever. As long as everybody gets what they want at the table that night, you can you can have some variance. Um but I think that also that cuts to a core of how do you manage encounter timing, not just combat encounters, but encounter timing generally. And this is something I struggled with for a long time because I always wanted the encounter to be good. It would take as long as I needed to make the encounter be good, mm -hmm. hit the note that I wanted and get the players what they wanted. And I had to reevaluate that when I learned a how to run a con game, you know, a convention game and played within them as well because you have a fixed time slot. It's more by time. And th this like is a, an encounter every 40 minutes or something. You right. Know? And this is exactly how they do it in organized play too for uh, D&D Beyond mm -hmm. and I guess it's the Adventurers League and uh, uh, Pathfinder Society and others is, you know, you, you, they know that the adventure that they're handing you if you're running that game is set for a four-hour time slot. Sometimes it goes to six. There are X number of encounters, and they expect you to resolve one of the encounters every 40 minutes to an hour. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they've built it that way, and they've measured out the turns for how long it'll take, and average rounds, a monster will survive, and they know that a round takes so long at a table, you know. So thinking, just the act of thinking about that and keeping an eye on the clock as you're running the adventure is immeasurably useful, you know, to be able to know, okay, this encounter is, this was like just a fight they picked at a bar and already it's taken 40 minutes. Yeah. I got to find a way to wrap this up soon. You know, like we're going to. It's a good skill to form. Right. Because right. you may not always do that uh, at a home game. You may not be under time pressure, so it may not be something you think about. Maybe. I mean, if you have a long session, Usually like eight hours, then, then maybe you don't. Yeah, but, maybe you don't need to worry about all it. All of the games I play now are four hours-ish, yeah. you know, less, really. But uh, You really don't have as much time to play games as you want, so it's it's always nice to keep it moving. Right, right. You know, hit hit the thing you want in the encounter, and then start finding a way out of it as soon as you can. Once you've made that point... Now it's like it's like a it's like an apex, you know. You, think, you build up to it, and then you yeah. past it, and you have to just get down. I think I find really helps with this is being generous with your information flow towards your players, because that way they have the information they need to make go decisions and make plans and do things, and then you get 
the planning is a little bit less, you know, less encumbering of the time and they'll jump into action totally a little agree. bit more readily. You almost have to be too generous. Yeah, like yeah, tell them multiple it, times it, because, you know, humans are humans like and you're it like, bounces off their head. You're like, I'm really giving away all these secrets. This right. is super obvious. Right. But it honestly, it really helps. Like there's no point in hoarding the information. None. Like what is it? It doesn't do anything for you unless you give it to the players. It's not even real until the players know it. So... So one of the things I like to do for pacing as well, and this is really about stakes management, is thinking about how to keep them high. Uh, I like to go straight for the top right at the start um, or make it seem that way anyway. You know, like high stakes, Mm -hmm. life or death, not just life or death. Like, okay, maybe maybe we open there. It's it's life or death and also in an earthquake. (laughs) You know, and then like you run that for a little bit. Those are immediately high, like super crazy high stakes. And... uh, and when the players get a sense for the ground movement mechanics that mm-hmm. you've added to this encounter, and they, they start to look like they're going to win the battle, you know, and they've figured it out and they've solved that puzzle, then raise the stakes again. So not only is it you're in a life or death fight in the middle of an earthquake, but one of the guys just oh, yeah. summons a demon and it turns into some awful monster, you know, I who mean, starts summoning a meteor from the sky. Yeah, like, the boss has at least three forms. Yeah, right, you know? exactly. You have to raise the stakes like, again. I've never got to the end of a JRPG and the boss just has like one form. No. I mean, and part of it is the fake out, right? Like this is this is really in the adventure and and some adventures will give you an obvious stages through a boss or an encounter to set this up, but but really when you're running the adventure it's about knowing how to fake out the players to have them believe, "All right, this is the big this is it." You know, like, "All right, here I'm going to pull out the stops." And then you stretch them just a little bit further than that with one maybe yeah. two oh, yeah. more escalations. And then when they get that victory, it feels hard one. It's really, it was a good pace. You don't want to overdo it though. No, th- this is the kind of thing. Or make it feel contrived. I, I agree. You don't want to, you don't want to like, there's not going to be five forms to your boss. Yeah. You have to read your players. Yeah. I mean, and you can have like maybe like an enemy resurrects once as a zombie form or something, but like if you constantly rely on the same methods to pull that off, it gets, unless it's part of the story, it gets a little tired. Which is why, I mean, if it's predictable, then it's no yeah. longer the fake out. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. That's a that's, good point. That's the point, right? You have to be able to <laughs> fake them out. So if, you, if you're if you doing the same shtick over and over, you know. And, but the thing is that these tend to be pretty climactic things. You want to use it to open an adventure. You maybe want to use it at the end of adventure. Yeah, you don't you want to use want it to as use a crutch. It maybe in the middle of an adventure, and they should be different. There's no, you're yeah. not going to have one of these every session. You can't really design memorable. It just kind of has to happen. You know, you can you, you can design well and hope it goes well and enough you can, to be memorable. And you can learn how to escalate. <laughs> exactly. You know. Well, yeah, that's like you said. You just raise the stakes enough, it probably will end up being memorable. Right. Maybe not fun. <laughs> I think it depends. You have to know, you have to know your players. You know, if it's a TPK, well, I hey, hope they like that. Hey, <laughs> hardcore um, man. But but it also it doesn't have to be harder. Escalation doesn't have to That's be true. harder. It doesn't have you know? to be through difficulty. Right. And uh, one of the best ways I think to escalate something it can even be like emotional can for be, the character can be through trade off. You know, you you have to make them make a hard choice, and now they make a and so they make a hard choice and then you show them another hard choice that's worse because of the consequences of the last choice. One of my favorite to mess with is like a character's reputation in the game world. Because you're not messing with the player directly, but it's a nice way to like kind of like get at the character, you know? Yeah, poke at it. Like so. give them like a mean nickname or something or right. like, you know. 
I mean, that, one, that one's a fun one. I, I think it's, I do that as a player a lot. I'll give nicknames to other, other players' <laughs> characters because <laughs> I, I just think that some names are ridiculous. It's great. I um, love it. So I think that uh, that's, that's basically what there is to say about pacing, you know, mm-hmm. keeping the adventure going. But there's more that goes into a good adventure, I think, than just what's in the book or the pace you run it. I think that you also have to include, and this is why I think about the the role it serves at our table as a game mm-hmm. that we're playing that night, uh, is the the experience of of the night. What's the immersive experience that you get? You know, and you go online and watch podcasts and vlogs and all this kind of stuff, and there are some people who have fancy, fancy Dungeons a lot and Dragons, of Dwarven rooms. Forge equipment. I'm jealous of I some know, of those people. It's pretty cool. But I, think I feel better when I look at the price tags, though. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm like, oh my god, that's the most expensive plastic. That's so much money that I don't, didn't spend. <laughs> for for immersive experiences, I think that one of the cheapest and effective ways that you can do it is with music at the table. And uh, I, I'm I'm biased, admittedly, because it hooks right into my animal brain, you know, and gives me my soundtrack. But yeah. uh, but I think that this is one of the 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 easy ways that you can make the like like sound and smell and senses yeah this is this is part of it i think the important thing to remember with like these extra kind of like window dressings or icing on the cake kind of stuff is that it is it's meant to like accentuate and supplement the adventure it will never save a shitty adventure correct don't use this as a crutch like every now and that kind of happens people will fall into using like the music or their props or their effects and it gets to be like a little much like you don't need to fully like go down that path if like your adventure is shaky to begin with. I mean, if if you if you show if somebody shows up at the table and is larping, then I think you have a different conversation to have. I mean, hey, maybe that's their jam. Yeah, it's just not D and D. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, so, but I think that that's that's the point of. I mean, some people use candles and lighting. There's I think. some people who are like super. Like, I mean. <sighs> It's, what it's I like hard. about what I like about music and why I use it and have used it for a, a long time at a, at a game is because it, you can set it and then forget it. Mostly, you can it gets out of your way, and uh, and you can manage it pretty easily. Um, but do, it, but it doesn't require that it becomes the focus of the game. You need to make sure right? it's like not super repetitive, and then you maybe there's some variance. Um, right. But so, yeah, so if let's you have talk the right a little bit setup, about like it works pretty well. What works as good for music for good music at a table, and what seems like it should but never never does and then how how you can quickly filter through it so some of the best music that there is i think at any role-playing game table actually is from video game music because a lot of video game music is designed to be in the background out of the way while you're adventuring very repetitive while you're adventuring fighting running chasing exploring investigating all of the things that we do in our role-playing games supports the action right and and it loops usually seamlessly so you can grab a bunch of this stuff and you can use it for a whole variety of different, you know. And they're usually longer tracks, which helps with the looping to be less noticeable. Yeah, exactly. Um, what seems like it should work but never works is movie soundtracks. Like, oh, yeah, those just, don't work. It doesn't. They're too, uh, you they have too much of a narrative to sometimes, them. You, sometimes you can pull maybe like a track or two for like a, a, a chase scene or a battle maybe, scene. Maybe. But that's about it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, because they're usually pretty short tracks. TV's a little bit, a little bit easier in some cases, but yeah, you're right. It's like it's 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 hard, and and you're right. The the 
the TV scene, the fight scene lasts maybe for a minute and a half, two mm-hmm. minutes, right? Yeah. So the song is going to have a journey that it tells in that minute and a half, two minutes, which a fight is going to... pretty gonna... intense to listen to that music for 30 minutes. <laughs> no, exactly. The fight's going to last that 30 minutes or something. You know, so you want it to at least be like, if you can get it, three to five minutes, right? So it loops less yeah. and has less of an obvious, you know, repetitive... Because humans are pattern matching machines. That's our yeah, job, right? So notice. we pick it up like yeah. that. I find a strategy that can work is two or two strategies. One is you can go the playlist method and kind of create a playlist that you know of songs you might want to use during a particular session. But I think another really smart method to use is to have separate lists for like, all right, this is stuff for in town. This is stuff for battle. This is stuff for exploring. And maybe you do that by like where they are. Um, So yes, yes to all of the above. I have... I have both of those, and I want to talk about how I filter because I the the one that I do the best I think is not it's neither of those, uh, and it's that I create a playlist for a I guess for a campaign really okay. is what it is so for like the, a campaign for the, playlist that's right and uh, and it has all of the songs and it represents some part of the tone for that campaign and one of the games I run I have more generic stuff because it's more generic style campaign but. Even still, you need to filter for like town music, battle music, dungeon music, uh, whatever other kind of music, and you either put it on the background, and sometimes it's spot on, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's not. Yeah, you know, and, and sometimes I, the tone of the scene changes, and right. then you're like, oh, this music doesn't work anymore. Right, which is why I like the campaign playlist because yeah. then I can repeat one song, and I know exactly and what the one is. I chose kind it. Of attached to that motif of that song as well. It does a service for the adventure, and that it anchors their memories, it anchors mm-hmm. their feeling. They go, yeah, okay, I know where I am. I know how it feels. I know how how this song makes me feel. Uh, but the the way to filter it is, and this is this is just basically like how to how to get through the slog of listening to a bunch of music that you're going to use at your game. Oh, because oh, that's my least favorite part of you're prep. probably not like me that listens it. to video game music for fun. I mean, I can, but not actively. So normally, and here's the here's the secret to it: if you don't like to listen to it, just you know, as like background, you don't have to be like, yeah, I like this song. But like if it bothers you just to have it on in the background, it's not going to work at your table. Newsflash. <laughs> <laughs> so you can rule it out right away. So the way that I often will do it is I'll create maybe, and I have a couple of tools I've used for this right now. I use Winamp, uh, but I'll create a playlist and I'm going to say, let's, let's call it, um, out of the abyss playlist. Cause that's one of the ones I'm running. And let's say I get my hands on a new soundtrack. It's 10 songs. Uh, I got it from a game, maybe, or wherever, and I want to know if I can use any of them, and I don't know, I don't want to spend a lot of time doing it. So I load them all up into my media player, I play the first one, and this could be on my phone, or it could be on my computer, or whatever, and I'm like doing something. I'm, I'm commuting, or I'm cleaning the house, or I'm doing dishes, or whatever. And I listen to the first part of it, and if I can't automatically do one of a few things, I skip it. Either one, put it on a playlist, because I know where this song goes in the first 15 mm-hmm. seconds, I need to be able to know. Determine that uh, that's A. B, not appropriate, not interested. C, unlike the song generally, and I'm going to skip it. So within the first few, you know, under a minute, probably under 30 seconds, I know of whether or not I'm going to probably keep this song or skip it. And if it's interesting enough, sometimes I'll encounter a song that I'm like, I don't know where this goes yet. And I, then I look down, and I'm like, wow, I'm a minute and a half into it. Then I'll keep it and decide later because it obviously got me that far. So, yeah. you know, but I, it's it's really about how to 
and there are lots of time, I think there are lots is lots of time in our lives while we, we have time for this. Like you have to get through and filter it very quickly. So you need to be able to make the call like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And a lot of time you're, I feel like your gut response to the tone and feel of the music's probably what you're looking for. It's exactly it's what you're your players for. are actively listening right. to it. They're focusing on right. what's going on at the table. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I, I, that's why I think that filtering it quickly like that into some pre-made playlists uh, it works really well because yeah. the, the music is keyed to our guts. It's keyed to our feelings. Yeah, so it, it definitely works. I never used music myself until I played in your games. And I was like, wow, when you manage it correctly, because mm. when you music is another thing to manage. And for some DMs, that's not going to work. It's going to be too much. Or like you're going to maybe have players who just find it really distracting. Sometimes it can. Be. Um, so it, it's definitely something that some groups will like and some groups will hate. Uh, but it's something that I've learned to like and use more. I'm not very good at using it, mainly because I don't like to put the time and the work into it. And <laughs> I kind of go with more of a campaign playlist these days, you know. But it can definitely be like a good mood control kind of thing. And if you have it set up right, it's it's it can really be helpful rather than like a hassle. Agreed. Uh, and sound effects too, you know. So um, that one I find is just like, uh, well, there's 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 a couple of distinctions here, and I, I have I'll admit gigabytes of folly on my computer. Uh, I don't use most of it. And I also have a subscription to Sirenscape, which is a sound effects um, Yeah, I have a bit of that as well. Um, so f- sound effects can do better than music sometimes and worse than music at other times. And there's, a, there's a, a few key distinctions, one of which is folly versus sound effects. And folly is like footsteps in a background. You know, it's the sound of teacups in a cafe, paper on a table, um, bus stop, train station going by, all of this kind of stuff. Sound effects are actual things like a blazer blast, a sword hitting a shield, clang, you know, a car engine starts mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. cars driving by. And sound effects are easy to find, but they're not what you want for the game. You know, like a car engine start doesn't do very much good at a table. Right, because it plays once. Unless you got like a soundboard in front of you. I mean, but then you're then it's not right. Then it's more about the soundboard that you have. Yeah, it's not, exactly. You know, and it it doesn't give you a background sense. Like there's nothing else. It's just the sound of the car starting. But like a freeway passing by, that might be useful because you could play that when the characters, if they're in an urban setting, had one. They come out of a portal and yeah. I just feel like there's so many other things most DMs could focus on more than like getting more nitty-gritty with sound effects and fully uh, I, don't, I don't think you to have to get nitty-gritty to do it. No, I mean, and this is why this is why I want to talk next about the tools and tricks to do it, you know? So I think video game music is an easy way to hack into it pretty good if you want to go the music route because a lot of the work has already been done. You can look at the video game, see the tone by watching videos of it on YouTube, not only to hear the music, yeah, the music and part, see, see what it is. That's the, you don't have as much timing like you do with and sound then, effects and then, and then and you folly. can get the soundtrack. Sound effects, like I said, I don't think are useful at the game, but folly is. However, I don't think it's useful necessarily to manage it all yourself. If you're going to, and I've done it, I like Winamp for mm-hmm. it because it's the only media player anywhere today that lets you have multiple instances of itself, yeah. unless you're running on Linux and are a total uber nerd, in which case you do you. Mm-hmm. You're already a total DIY, whatever. You're, you do whatever you want. Right. Um, but Winamp lets you say, I'm going to load up a bunch of folly, you know, and also my music and different playlists my, at the same time. Yeah. And then be able to have like music or switch between layered sound effects, like here's a rain sound effect. And also, uh, here's a dragon sound effect, you know, in the background and lightning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So it gives you flexibility in like what loops you want to make without a lot of real work. Um, but also Sirenscape is a really good one for that nowadays, you know, and, and I think it's really worth a lot of the, the, the it's money for the pre-made sound effects. Maybe not the music so much. It's nice that he has. No, there, the music like, doesn't work quite well. I, I, I honestly like I've had Sirenscape for a while and I just ended up moving to using music on a like Spotify playlist. Right. Like it works fine. Um, and so, but what I like about Sirenscape is that I can say like, all right, put together a few different, uh, folly tracks for like a marketplace. Yeah. If you make you know? your own like custom setups on that for what right. you're doing, it can work pretty well. Also because very there's easy some to good, create a sound. There's some good folly in like background tracks. And you know, you can use other, lots of programs for this kind of stuff or wherever your playlist is. VLC, iTunes, doesn't really matter. I've used all of them. I've tried yeah. every single one. I came back to Winamp because I like that it can be multiple instances. Yeah. And Winamp's pretty good solid. looping control. But the Mac version doesn't have any of that stuff. So I don't know what to yeah. tell you. Yeah, I know. I should like it's yeah, it's one of those things that if you're feeling pretty comfortable with like what everything else you're doing, like you could definitely add a little extra with some music. Like for but for myself, I I could work on the music more, but I know as a DM, I probably need to work at being better on my descriptions no, and your descriptions on my exposition. Are fine. You give yourself not like, enough that credit. I, could do I, better. Think that you should, I think you give yourself the music is like you should give yourself more so credit extra for work. That. Here's what I here's why music I think focuses why I focus so much on it. Uh, if I take the Skylar part of it out, because I know it hooks into my limbic system and gives me whatever chills, you know, but music was the thing when I figured out how to do it at the table uh, for an adventure that kicked it up a notch where players started saying, nobody runs, I've never had anybody run a game like that before. Yeah. Right? So, you know, and that's what makes the, the adventure really... definitely adds a layer of drama. They remember it, yeah. you know, and they, they start to feed well, into it. I remember it because I was like, wow, it. this is the first time I've seen music really work how I always imagined it, it could work in a game, which right. was cool. Right. Because it doesn't work when you're trying to be like, ooh, spooky. No. It's like no one at the table is scared. We're Candles adult. don't work we're, we're, either. No, you can't do... Flickering lights like, doesn't work either. No, you're just not going to get horror like that in the game. <laughs> so... um, Okay, I think the last thing to talk about is how to end an adventure. And uh, this is oftentimes one of the scariest, hardest parts uh, of, of running an adventure or designing an adventure. Um, <clears throat> I think it's worth making a note here that there are both climaxes and anticlimaxes. And, you know, the climax is, of course, the pinnacle. It's the most critical moment of the adventure. It's where the heroes or protagonists do actually pull off whatever it is that was at risk, saving town saving the world, stopping Tiamat, whatever it is. You know. Or utterly failing. Or utterly failing and the world is ended, you know. And then also there's an anticlimax, which is, you know, anticlimactic. It's like, yeah, well, we didn't encounter Tiamat because um, the something else went wrong. Because the party wanted to open a tavern. We went, Yeah, right, cause, exactly. The party wanted to open a tavern instead and now are selling <laughs> beers to followers of the Dragon Queen. Okay. Um, and you know if they're very satisfied with that that may also be a very humorous ending sometimes stories go that way and it's okay Um, but I think that it's worth being aware of what one you're aiming for in the adventure and which one the adventure lends itself to but also I want to talk if if we're talking about endings you can't talk about endings without the structure of the adventure Um, and here I think it's useful to look at the two broad categories that I see in how stories uh, progress and it doesn't have not just like improv stories not just um, ad hoc stories like an adventure also TV all of it uh, and the sort of western model is the three act model right act A act B act C act A 
opens a bunch of stuff, exposition, and the core of the conflict is set up at the end of Act A. Act B, things get worse and really bad until it's really desperate at the end of Act B, and then there's a shift. And Act C, everything is resolved, and there's probably a denouement, right? The mm-hmm. Coming down after the Rise climax. Rising action, falling action, epilogue, all that. Right. Versus... In the Japanese style, particularly Kurosawa was famous for making movies about this, it, it's a more of a pacing difference. They don't have a three-act style. The tension goes slow, 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 faster, 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 until you get to the end of the story. And at the very end of the story, it's the fastest! And then it ends. And that sudden ending, that's it, that's the end of the story right there, is you know also very potent and leaves the audience walking by going... <gasps> This is true. So adventures can do both, right? They can be either one of these. It's useful to think about which one you want to run. And usually the the kind of scope of the adventure right. kind of matters for right. this. Right. The final climax will be in one or the other, like a climax with an epilogue, Western style, you know, or just at the climax yeah, is it, Eastern style. How many sessions you're doing also, you can't, you know, you can't Kurosawa every session. Right. Like three I, hours I mean, long. You could. Um, so the, <laughs> no, uh, no, the session would have to be much longer. The, um, <laughs> the, that, that'll give you closure for the story, which we as humans like, right? When we read a book or see a TV series, most people look at that and they go, oh, that had a nice arc. It had some closure. I like the pacing of it. I like where the story went. We look for that. Uh, also, all of us are looking for closure for the, the characters who are in the story, too. And I think that as, as you're running an adventure, and both as a player too, it's useful to think about two different types, broadly, that there are of types of characters, possible characters that can be. Uh, and, and they are either dramatic heroes or characters and iconic heroes or characters. And the difference is basically boils down to, does the character change or not at the end of the story? So yeah. a dramatic hero or a character is one that goes through whatever the ordeals are of the adventure, the story, and then comes out different, learns something. Mm-hmm. Things are changed. The world yep. is not the same for that person. It's, you know, it's it's new. It's worse or better or who knows. And an iconic character, by contrast, has a worldview, has the worldview challenged through the course of the adventure, and then reaffirms that worldview through success at the end of the adventure. And you have the same setup for villains as well. You yes. have the villain yes. who wants to keep the status quo, yes. right? Keep the people under his heel. And then you have the villain who wants to change everything, take over the world. And it's funny, people tend to really drive more towards the dynamic characters that want to change things. Yeah, I mean, generally, I think that's, that's those where... Those tend to be the more popular characters. That's where the zeitgeist is today. Um, so let's provide some easy examples. In the modern incarnation, Steve Rogers' version of Captain America is a dramatic hero. At the end of Captain America, the first Avenger, he learns something, he changes, you know, and he he uh, has learned about the role of himself in this world larger than himself. And that makes him decide something quite powerful at the end. By contrast, Captain Marvel uh, is an iconic character. She has a belief at the outset of the story, and she is challenged by those who built her. And then she reaffirms that belief at the end of the story and is exactly who she was at the very start. And we're glad for it. You know, mm-hmm. There's neither one that's better than the other. But it's useful for everybody at the table because now you know what kinds of things are going to be satisfying to that character. A dramatic character, a player who's having that is going to look for some change to happen in their character. An iconic character has a statement that they're yeah. seeking to and validate. The nice thing is you can talk about this with your players on the player level. Yes, exactly. Especially if they know it's a one-shot or it's going to be the last session. You're like... You can talk. Don't be afraid to talk to your your players on a player level and be like, "Hey, so how do you see this character ending?" Or like maybe they want to do a scene. You're like, "All right, show us where does this character end up?" And they can kind of take narrative control and give you a 
little scene or a little montage or right. an epilogue or something. Right. So, you know, the end of the adventure is when you, if you haven't gotten it, this is the time to do it for that character. You know, it don't have to happen at the end. It can happen sooner for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's definitely the, the most powerful moment in which to do that. And yeah, it's, it's it where you want to make sure that closure has have happened. have to happen on screen. Like, I'm sure there's groups where well, they'll be content just talking about it. That's right. And everyone will be there listening. And that's all they'll have to do. Exactly. There are other groups who want to play it out. It's going to change. It's going to be dependent on the players. Uh, mostly, it actually, I think, is that the story ends because of the sort of first draft nature of of role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. Yeah. The story ends, you know, the adventure ends, you're done with it, and then you talk about it afterwards. It's really, yeah, it's more the talking afterwards where the story emerges, where maybe a lot of those details are kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, and this and that really up. is like closure for the players. We're the audience and the players, and I mean players both here at the table, but also in the, in the theatrical sense, mm-hmm. because... That's very much how I view it. Yeah. Um, and that's like getting just desserts or justice, ha ha ha, desserts for, uh, for all of the people who we as the audience want to get it. Um, tying up whatever loose threads need to be tied up just so that we, you know, because we're going to think about it. We automatically yep. do. Our imaginations are going to run wild, you know. So being able to know what are the things. Well, what about that guy that we let live Oh, back then, back eight levels ago? And that's when like the author's like, I'm doing another book. And that's why right. it's useful sometimes it's to kind be... Of, it's kind of interesting, though, because you kind of see why people come back to do sequels or other things, because that kind of those little questions eat away at their mind. Like, but what happened to that character? What did he do after right. that? I got to know. So it's, in, it's useful Especially to be... discovery It's writers. useful to be intentional about what loose ends you leave. And I think that not every adventure does this. A lot of times in the adventure you'll see... Um, conclusions or continuing adventures at the very end of it or next step. I really like, like it when I've noticed in a lot of the adventures I've used recently, it will give you the option because maybe it's a chain. It's like if you're just playing this adventure and you're going to end it here, make sure you talk with your players and get them a satisfaction, excuse me, a satisfying ending to their character. Mm-hmm. And the other one, it'll say if you're going to continue, probably look at doing these kind of things. It'll lead well into the next adventure in this path. Right. So, you know, um, like with all things in this game, but especially the endings, a a little bit of forethought goes a long way here. You know, it really helps the players, uh, all of them, DM included, feel good about how they've just spent a whole bunch of their time. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the first things I do when I get an adventure is read what happens at the end. So I kind of know where we're going. Right. The the caveat is it's hard to talk about the end with your players because spoilers, you know. You just got to make sure you're not... This is why I find it useful really to talk about uh, the types of characters that there are, dramatic and iconic, because that's like a, it's like a note passing way to talk about where the story goes, you know. I think that's it. I don't think there's any more I have to say about uh, what makes a good adventure. No, that's pretty much it. Uh, good adventure. It's a tough thing to brew up. It has been a good adventure. It's definitely probably the hardest thing I think to do well in yeah, RPGs. That's so definitely true. To those who write them, thank you. Here, here. <laughs> All right. Until next time. We'll see ya.